Thanks. Am I on? All right, great. Good morning, everyone. It's a um, real pleasure to be with you uh, this morning. Uh, just a couple of things I want to mention before we get into our text. Um, so I've timed and, and rehearsed uh, this message, and um, it's not short, so uh, that might come as a disappointment to some of you, so if you are hoping to get out of here early. Um, second, this message was developed from a series of Bible study lessons that I prepared for our home group. We studied the book of Mark uh, this past year, so I do want to thank my home group members for all of their questions and comments and our discussions, um, all which were very helpful. Um, unfortunately for you guys, this means you have to hear all of this from me again, so this might seem extra long to you. Um, the text that I've chosen for today's message comes from Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 35. Hear the word of the Lord. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Thus far the reading of God's word, please join me in prayer. <coughs> Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and ask now that your spirit would Teach us and guide us. I pray that the words of my mouth would reflect your truth and draw our attention to Christ. And may the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. We pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So, like many of you, Christmas is my favorite holiday. Um, my wife and kids laugh at me because the day after Halloween, which, which I don't like, by the way, I go into the garage, and I move a bunch of boxes, and I set up our fake plug-in tree. More than any other time of the year, Christmas gives us, or gives me at least, something to look forward to. You know, time away from work or school, uh, parties with friends, the annual branch party, uh, family gatherings, good food, the music. And I bet some of you kids are probably already thinking about Christmas presents. For many of us, we have this feeling of hopeful expectation in the, in the weeks, maybe months, leading up to Christmas. Well, around the time that Jesus was born, the people of Israel were also waiting for something. They had this deep collective yearning, a, a longing for something that had been promised long ago. I think there's much truth to the, one of the verses in the Christmas song, O Little Town of Bethlehem. 
where there's a line that says, The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. At the time when Jesus came into the world as that little baby in the manger, the Jewish worldview was characterized by a particular story, a narrative. Here's a brief summary of that story. God made a covenant with Abraham to make him a great nation, promising to bless the whole world through his descendants. Through Moses, God then brought the people out of Egypt into the promised land, turning a group of former slaves into a nation and gave them the law, priests, sacrifices, and a place of worship. God thereafter established David as king and promised him that one of his sons would sit on the throne forever. And that promise seemed on the verge of fulfillment when Israel reached its peak with the building of the temple and the wisdom and wealth of Solomon. But things then quickly degenerated. With a few exceptions, the kings of Israel and Judah led the people into terrible sins and idolatry. Again and again, they ignored warnings to repent and return to faithfulness. And so finally, Israel and then Judah were sentenced to exile, the ultimate covenant, curse. Yet in the midst of that exile, God assured them through his prophets that he had not forgotten his promises. God would restore Israel through a king who would once again sit on the throne of David, who would deliver Israel from the oppression of her enemies, and who would establish God's kingdom forever. And even though the people were brought back from exile to their land, and the temple was rebuilt, that promise remained unfulfilled. Sin, oppression, and fear continue to haunt Israel. So at the dawn of the first century, they were still waiting for the promised king and kingdom of God. You know, one of the reasons I enjoy history so much is that studying history helps us recognize the common experiences and desires that we all have as human beings, things that that bridge our differences in time and place. Even though we live in this current digital age where everything seems to be literally at our fingertips, the image of God in us includes this inescapable sense of dependence. We all have this deep intuition of a reality that transcends our own limitations, our own finite existence. And this intuition, this deeply embedded notion of transcendence, creates in all of us, all image bearers, a desire for assurance, for peace and security. Like first century Israel, 21st century Americans, and all people, in all times and places, want to be assured that there is a future and a hope. And it is to these perennial issues of the human experience that Mark 8.29 provides the answer. You are the Christ. So this morning, I'd like to explore how Peter's confessional statement indeed answers the hopes and fears of all the years. Our passage and Peter's confession specifically occurs at about the midpoint of Mark's gospel account. Mark is preoccupied with answering these three interrelated questions. First, who is the Christ, the Son of God? Second, what what is the gospel, the good news that Jesus proclaims? And third, what is required of a disciple? What should followers of the Christ believe and how should they live? In the first half of the book, Jesus demonstrates that he is indeed the long-expected Messiah, 
culminating in Peter's statement in Mark 8, 29. But thereafter, Jesus starts to reveal things about himself that would cause many to reject him. Things that would even trouble his disciples. Now, in a certain sense, the disciples and the large crowds who followed him everywhere, and even the religious leaders who opposed him, were in some ways correct in their conception of the Christ, which is the Greek word for Messiah. God did promise an anointed representative who would usher in his kingdom. But if they were right to expect this divinely chosen king, then that begs the question, how come so many of them didn't recognize Jesus as the Messiah? After all, Jesus came preaching the kingdom of God, and he demonstrated that the kingdom had come by performing dozens, even hundreds of miracles, healing diseases, casting out demons, feeding 5,000, even raising the dead. His works revealed divine power, and he taught with divine authority. But when Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? They say, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. How did they get it wrong? And even Peter and the disciples who correctly identify him as the Christ, why did they misunderstand important things about him and about his mission? Well, according to Jesus, it's because they missed the teaching of the Old Testament. The great and in many ways tragic irony of the Gospels is that Jesus came to his own and his own people did not receive him. They missed the Christ of revelation, that is, the Messiah revealed in the scriptures. In John 5, 39, Jesus says to his opponents, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. And later on in, in John 5, 46, he says, for if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Likewise, he chastises the two disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, 25 for being slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. You see, when we consider the themes in the Old Testament, think of different threads that run through Israel's history. One thread is that of king and kingdom, which we see most prominently in God's promise to David. But there are other threads there is God's promise to raise up a prophet like Moses in Deuteronomy 18.15. Another theme is atonement through sacrifice, the, the need for holiness and purity so that God can dwell with his people. And then there are these somewhat mysterious figures that we see in different parts of Scripture. The Son of Man in Daniel 7 who receives an everlasting kingdom. There is the anointed servant in Isaiah, upon whom God will put his spirit, who will gather and restore his covenant people. So throughout his ministry, Jesus is weaving together all these different threads in the Old Testament into this beautiful and majestic garment, a mosaic of a perfectly righteous and obedient, divine yet human, anointed prophet, priest, and king. All these themes coalesce in Jesus like streams into one river that satisfies the, the longing and thirst for the fulfillment of all the promises that God had made to his people. But so many around Jesus miss this because he subverts their expectations. 
He doesn't come from the right family or have the right education. He doesn't, at least in their mind, check the right boxes. Instead, he, he challenges their assumptions. He speaks in parables. He overthrows their traditions. You know, one of the things we notice in Mark and the other Gospels is that they at times offer a recapitulation, a, a reenactment of Israel's history. The Old Testament is filled with episodes where Israel grumbles against and even rejects what God gives to the people. After Moses goes up the mountain to receive the law, he comes back to find the people worshiping a golden calf. Like Moses, Jesus goes up a mountain. Peter, James, and John see his transfiguration, and from there, he goes straight to Jerusalem, where he weeps over the city and denounces the theft and idolatry taking place right there in the temple. So here is history repeating itself. The transfiguration shows that Jesus is God's anointed servant like Moses. In fact, far greater and more glorious than Moses because he is the son of God. And yet he comes down the mountain to again find his people unfaithful. They reject the Messiah, the, the king that God provides to them, and instead say to Pilate, we have no king but Caesar. And they said this because they had exchanged the Christ that God revealed to Israel and to the world for a Messiah of their own imagination. And this is still happening today. Earlier this year, I, I came across a story about a regional Roman Catholic bishop who announced a, a policy that required people in his congregation to use the bathroom that matches their biological sex. Since the notion that men should not have access to facilities reserved for women goes against the current gender identity trend in our society, uh, critics were, were quick to denounce the policy, some even calling it unchristian. One local state senator said, quote, this is not what Jesus would do. Now, I don't mean to deny the reality of people who struggle with gender dysphoria and so forth. Um, those problems, those sufferings are real, so I don't want to minimize their difficulty. But believing that Jesus would affirm whatever we think or feel is right is a projection of a Jesus made in our own image. Before, before we scoff at this rather extreme example that I'm giving, we may want to examine ourselves and see if we're guilty of the same sort of thing, although maybe to a lesser degree. Having been in this part of the Reformed world for about 15 years, I've, I've observed two perspectives that I think can become problematic if we're not careful. On the one hand, some of us gravitate toward Jesus, the powerful Messiah. We say amen to the Jesus who is the ruler of the kings of the earth, who will break his enemies with a rod of iron. And we seem to overlook, or at least neglect, the, the message in Scripture that God's strength is frequently demonstrated in ways that are completely different from our typical ideas about power and authority. The ruler of the kings of the earth is also the gentle shepherd who showed extreme compassion to the afflicted, who washed the feet of his disciples, who cried out to the Father on behalf of those who mocked him while he hung on the cross. 
On the other hand, some of us tend to over-spiritualize Jesus. Oh, he's a king, yes, but his kingdom's not of this world. And until he comes again, we just need to concern ourselves with worship and the spiritual life of the church. Those of us in this camp forget that Jesus calls us to a mission. We're not called simply to come to church, but to be the church. The church that proclaims the lordship of Christ. The church who is salt and light to the world. We're called to action. We're called to engagement. My basic point here is that the Christ of Revelation meets our greatest needs and answers our greatest hopes, even if he doesn't always agree with our expectations. Many in Israel rejected Jesus because he didn't match the profile that they'd built up in their own minds about the Messiah and what he would do. But God doesn't act according to our desires, but according to his purpose and his promises. So, brothers and sisters, let's, let's look at our own hearts. Is it possible that we've adopted an imbalanced, maybe even distorted view of Jesus? And let that self-examination drive us back to the word of God, which reveals to us the fullness of the person and work of Christ. That brings me to my next point. The, the scriptures are not at all unclear that the Christ had to suffer. The Christ of Revelation was a man of sorrows. Isaiah 53 portrays the Lord's anointed one as the suffering servant from whom men hide their faces, the one who is stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. After Peter's great confession, Jesus foretells for the first time his rejection and death in Jerusalem. And Peter immediately reacts, almost in anger. This shall never happen. We can only speculate as to what was going on inside of Peter's head. But like many Jews at the time, Peter probably thought of salvation primarily in terms of deliverance from a physical flesh and blood enemy. To to restore the kingdom, we need to get these people, these godless Gentiles, out of our land. So it was simply inconceivable to them that God's Messiah would suffer and die. As I mentioned earlier, the Jews of this generation were not wrong to desire a king who would protect and defend them, who would conquer their oppressors. But they were wrong about the identity of their true enemy. And because they were wrong about the nature of their problem, they were also wrong about the remedy that God would provide Jesus therefore tells his disciples that the Son of Man must suffer and die. Why? To meet mankind's greatest need, deliverance from the oppression of sin and death, our true enemy, our ultimate foremost enemy. To fail to recognize this is, according to Jesus, to set our mind on the things of man rather than the things of God. And that, as we can see from the passage, is a satanic, deadly Error. In the wilderness temptation, the devil tried to prevent Jesus from going to the cross. And having failed to do that, he now tries to deceive us into thinking that the death of Christ is somehow unnecessary. I remember years ago when one popular Christian author said that to believe that the Father would send his son to suffer and die is to believe in a sort of divine child abuse. Sadly, the idea that sin demands atonement is seen by many, even in the church, as antiquated, maybe even barbaric. 
Now, given all the sacrifices commanded by Moses, the, the Passover, the daily burnt offering, the Day of Atonement, and so forth, and in spite of Israel's history of apostasy and exile, in light of all that, it makes you wonder, how could so many of them think that the Romans were the real problem that had to be dealt with? I think the short answer is the human tendency to acquit ourselves. We are naturally self-justifiers. You see, part of our wretched condition as sinners, part of our disease, is that we tend to think that we're fine. And that means we tend to think of sin and the brokenness that results from sin as an external problem. In our current environment where religion has become so politicized, I think there's a genuine danger that Christians can be misled into believing that the biggest problem, the real oppressor, is the sin in others rather than the sin that lies in our own hearts. You know, it's those people over there, the, the violent Marxists, the pro-death abortionists, the, the hateful atheists who call good evil and evil good, they deserve God's judgment. Yes, they, they certainly do. But here are some, some sins that, that Paul, the Apostle Paul says are worthy of death in Romans 1, 29 and 30. See if these hit a little closer to home. Envy, strife, gossip, being boastful. Here's one for you kids. Being disobedient to parents. Our shorter catechism says every sin deserves God's wrath and curse, both in this life and the one to come. Or as Paul says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. You know, it's easy to forget that this applies to us. That we've all done things that are worthy of God's judgment. And this is why Paul in the first three chapters of Romans labors so intensely, so thoroughly, almost exhaustively, to make one fundamental point, that no one is righteous before God. Not one. The suffering and death of Christ reveals to us the terrible consequences of sin. It completely destroys any notion that we have the ability to stand before the judge of all the earth dressed in our own righteousness because it confronts us with the severity of God's justice. The cross shows us clearly and vividly, this is what your sin deserves. And yet the cross also displays to us the riches of God's mercy and grace. Like the serpent that Moses lifted up in the wilderness, the symbol of the condemnation and punishment that we deserve is also the remedy by which our guilt is taken away and our sins atoned for. This is why the the suffering of Christ is at the heart of the gospel message. As lawbreakers, we deserve the wrath and curse of God, but the Christ, who alone was the perfect lawkeeper, became a curse for us so that God would see us as righteous in him and give us the blessing of eternal life. Worthy, indeed, is the Lamb of God who was slain and ransomed us by his blood. But our passage also talks about another significance that the suffering of death, suffering of Christ has for his disciples. And it is this. Because Christ suffered, those who follow him, you and I, shouldn't expect a life of ease and comfort. 
Jesus says in Matthew 10.24, No disciple is above his teacher, and no servant is above his master. He tells his disciples plainly on the night before his death in John 16.33, In the world you will have tribulation. And Jesus says more or less the same thing in our passage when he says that anyone who follows him must be willing to deny himself and to take up his cross. What does it mean to take up our cross? Pastor Paul has talked about this a number of times. It doesn't simply mean that we all have rough times that we need to go through. That's usually what people mean when they say something like, oh, this is the cross I have to bear. No, to those listening to Jesus, a cross meant one thing, a death sentence. There's a cost to following Christ. Jesus says it plainly in verse 35, whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. Now what that looks like in terms of everyday life may be different for each of us. Certainly those words have a weight and significance to them for, for, for Christians in, in places like China that we don't share. But there are a couple of things that we all share as followers of Jesus. First, one of the marks of a disciple is endurance. The one who keeps the faith the one who endures until the end will be saved, the one who conquers, as Jesus says to the seven churches in Revelation. Second, followers of the Christ are called to live sacrificially. If you study Mark, you'll you'll notice that each time Jesus foretells his death, in the next passage, he gives a lesson about humbling yourself. After speaking of his death for the second time, Jesus says that those who desire to be first must become the last of all, and a servant of all. It's Mark 9.35. And here in Mark 8, Jesus is saying, if you want to be my disciple, then this is what you have to understand. This is what you have to realize. You belong to another. Your life is not your own. Die to yourself and follow me, because I died and gave myself up for you. So we should constantly be thinking, how is Christ calling me to deny myself, to lose my life for his sake? Well, for me personally, there are a few obvious answers. I'm I'm called to love my wife, to put her concerns above my own. called to teach and minister to my children, to provide for them, to give up my time and comfort to ensure their well-being. As an elder, I'm called to serve you, to labor in prayer to watch over your spiritual nourishment, your growth and grace, even if that means wrestling through a five- or six-hour session meeting. B.B. Warfield said, Self-sacrifice means to forget yourself so that you become absorbed in the concerns of those around you. Whatever our situation is, following Christ means that we are to walk the road of endurance and self-sacrifice that he walked You know, we read later on in Mark that as Jesus heads for Jerusalem, his disciples sort of tread behind him. They're they're unsure and afraid. And oftentimes, that's how I feel. Because when Jesus said to his disciples, in the world you will have tribulation, he he wasn't making a suggestion. He was telling them what to expect. But he also gives us this assurance. Take heart. I have overcome the world. And that takes me to the third point, that the Christ of Revelation, the Christ who suffered and who calls us to suffer and deny ourselves, is also the risen Christ. 
Peter and the disciples almost never seem to pay attention to the fact that each time Jesus foretells his death, he doesn't, that's not the end of the story. He doesn't, he doesn't stop there. He says each time, and after three days, the Son of Man will rise again. It isn't until Jesus opens their minds to understand the scriptures that they see that the Christ must suffer and then enter into his glory. Thereafter, when the apostles preach the gospel, not only is the death of Christ, but his resurrection is central to their message. And they don't talk about it as if it was just some great miracle. They speak of the resurrection as the cosmic event that changes everything. Paul calls the resurrection the hope of Israel in Acts 28. Earlier, I talked about all these themes in the Old Testament. Only the risen Christ can bring these themes to their climax and fulfillment. He is the seed of the woman who has crushed the head of the serpent. He is the offspring of Abraham who ascended into heaven and poured out the promised Holy Spirit, bringing salvation beyond Israel to all the families of the earth, Jew and Gentile, to everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. He is the prophet greater than Moses because his spirit opens our eyes to embrace the gospel and writes the law not on tablets of stone but on human hearts. He is the high priest who offered himself as the perfect sacrifice and rose again to enter into that true holy of holies to appear before God on our behalf and now always lives to intercede for us. And he is the heir to David's throne whom God exalted to his right hand, and gave an eternal kingdom in which righteousness, blessing, and life will reign forever and ever. In short, the one who died and rose again proved that he is God's true and obedient son. He is the son of man who took on flesh and died to accomplish our redemption. And he is the victorious son of God who was raised in power whose spirit applies that redemption, and who holds all authority in heaven and on earth. The hopes and fears of all the years are met and can only be met by the risen Christ. There's certainly much more that can be said about the resurrection in terms of its biblical theological significance, but I just want to emphasize one point, which is this simple truth. Because he lives... We also shall live. Jesus says in John eleven twenty five and 26, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. The risen Christ, who is the hope of Israel, is also our hope and our future. In 1 Corinthians 15, 23, Paul calls Christ the firstfruits of the resurrection of the dead. Richard Gaffin, a longtime professor at Westminster, says that calling Christ the firstfruits means that Jesus is the first part of the harvest that includes his people. In other words, his resurrection and our resurrection cannot be separated. They are two episodes of the same event. Because he was raised up in glory and vindicated as righteous, we also will be vindicated on that great day of judgment. Because he was raised up in glory, we also shall be raised up in glory. Because he lives, we also 
shall live. And on that day when, when God will swallow up death forever, we will say in the words of Isaiah, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Jesus is the Christ of revelation who subverts but also exceeds our expectations. The Christ who suffers for our greatest need and the risen Christ who gives us a hope that will not disappoint. But since the full appearance of that hope still lies in the future, how then should we live here and now as disciples of the Christ? Let me finish up by talking briefly about three principles and patterns that we see throughout the Bible. The first is that disciples should live as pilgrims. Hebrews 11 says that by faith, Abraham and his descendants lived in tents like strangers and exiles on the earth because they were seeking a better homeland, a heavenly country. This doesn't mean that we withdraw from the world or that, that we shouldn't concern ourselves with what's going on around us. It means that we don't place our security in the things that we see, which will pass away. No, we live in accordance with a heavenly reality that is currently unseen, but is eternal. I don't know about you, but I don't get up every morning always feeling like a new creation. In fact, I get up and I look in the mirror and I see the outer man wasting away. But the inner man is being renewed day by day. That's 2 Corinthians 4.16. Our identity as believers, as those united to Christ by the Spirit through faith, is that we have been raised with Christ, and we're seated right now with Him in the heavenly places. So in a sense, the Christian life is to be who you already are in Christ, to live according to that life that is hidden with Him, and who will appear with Him in glory when He returns. The second biblical principle is this, suffering before glory. For Jesus, the way to exaltation was through humiliation, humbling himself by taking on the form of a servant, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus was perfected through suffering, and that is our story as his people. We live sacrificially. We endure hardship because we know that God has a purpose for us. In these experiences, he's refining us, he's shaping us, he's making us more and more like his son. And we persevere, looking forward to our final Sabbath rest. Lastly, as disciples of the Christ, let us observe and hold to this biblical principle, that blessing follows obedience. I don't mean to suggest, of course, that doing the right thing always leads to a happy outcome. We know from experience that oftentimes that's simply not the case. Nonetheless, the pattern that we see in Scripture is that obedience in response to God's grace typically leads to benefits in this life. Psalm 34 says that those who desire life in many days should turn away from evil and do good, and that the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The Apostle Peter quotes this psalm when he instructs us not to repay evil for evil when we are treated unfairly so that we may obtain 
a blessing. That's 1 Peter 3.9. And the Bible lays out this principle not simply for us to focus on receiving blessing, but to live in such a way that we give praise and honor to the source of all blessing. Our hearts and minds should always be set on the things of God because His glory is our chief end. Brothers and sisters, fellow disciples of the Christ, beloved people of God, let us therefore walk in the way of blessing, which is the path of sacrificial obedience, knowing that our Lord walked that road before us, that He walks with us by His Holy Spirit, and that at the end of this path, the Lord who lives the blessed rock of our salvation will say to us, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for sending your Son, Jesus, the Christ, the perfect, the final, the ultimate revelation of God, the Lamb of God who takes away our sins. Lord Jesus, we praise and thank you for suffering for our deliverance and for rising again for our victory. Help us by your Spirit to fix our eyes upon you and to walk humbly with you, seeking always to do that which is pleasing in your sight. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.